Well, no apologies. But I feel a little crummy about it. I'm disappointed. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, we've had the kind of season we've had. The injuries, the suspensions, the controversies, and still come out the top of the AL East. Possibly the most difficult division in Major League Baseball. That was notable. That was, like, celebratable. The Yankees played in Derek Jeter's farewell year. The Red Sox were defending World Series champions. Somehow, it was the Baltimore Orioles that finished the season 96-66, and 66, 12 games ahead of the Yankees and 25 games ahead of the World Series champions, Boston Red Sox. And then we blast into the ALDS postseason, we sweep Detroit, and this momentum builds, and now we're just four wins away from our first American League pennant in 31 years. And what happens? The Kansas City Royals happen. They sweep us in the ALCS, and they didn't humiliate us. You know, they just, they just beat us. Four close games in a row. And they didn't do it unjustly. I, I think, in fact, I think we may have received the lion's share of close calls uh, in our favor. So in, in the end, the, the Royals just capitalized on their momentum and played better baseball games. Do not misunderstand me. This is not complaining. This is lamenting. I wanted our guys to win. I wanted the Royals to lose. Truth be told, this would have been a bit of a different sermon had things gone the other way. <laughs> because all of this is not completely impertinent to our text for this morning. We are continuing our uh, decade-long series in the book of Romans. Uh, we should be done three or four years from now, almost. We're, we're closing in. Uh, Romans 12, we're in verse 14 today. Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Paul is continuing his exhortation to holy living in this last section of the book of Romans. This section is about the truth that what we do in the present matters. You see, God has done something amazing through his son, Jesus Christ, in that he's raised him from the dead, and because Christ is raised from the dead, God's new creation has begun. And that means that those of us who are in Christ have a job to do. What we do in the present matters to eternity. When we consider the hope we have in Jesus, when we call ourselves and each other people of the resurrection, then that means that the work um, of eternity, the work of the kingdom, begins now, begins while we're in this life. This is all about a journey of transformation, not conforming to the image of this world, but instead renewing our minds around 
the heavenly kingdom which is at hand. The moment we decide to exclude ourselves from the world around us and hide our light under a bushel, we've failed to be a blessing. No, we have a responsibility to God for the world in which we find ourselves. And part of that responsibility is going to involve building the church up as a spiritually gifted people defined by love. That, I think, is, is that's the first part of Romans 12. Then in verse 14, Paul turns a bit of a corner and starts speaking about the church as it faces the outside world. Love and evangelism towards sinners is not the only thing we're talking about here. Suddenly, it's not just Christians Paul is concerned with. Not only does Paul have something to say about non-Christians, meaning potential converts, if you like, he has direct words for how the church is to handle, handle those who are enemies of Christianity, a demographic whom Paul knows quite well. Building on the first 11 chapters of this letter, Paul is coming from a place of hope. It's inaugurated eschatology, as N.T. Wright would say. Paul knows where this ship is headed, and he says, no time like the present to get the crew into shape. Certain moral behavior and moral effort will be important for a people who are trying to live out this grace-centered gospel of new hope. That might sound great. But as you all know, sometimes loving others against the grain can be quite difficult. And Paul is going to tell the church in Rome something that they may not want to hear. Now, I need a volunteer. I know we don't have kids in here right now. Normally I'd do something goofy with a a kid, but I I need somebody. I'm going to call on Mark if nobody else raises their hand. Mark. Justin? All right, come on up. You, you, man, you, you were that close. You dodged a bullet. All right, you can stay right there. I tried this with James last night. It worked great. I'm going to give you um, just a, a command. I'm going to say something, and you just need to do what it is that I say that you're going to, you know, you should do. Okay. That sound, that sound, that makes sense? All right. Uh, jump. Stop. Clap. Look up. Look down. Touch your toes. Touch the back of your head. Ooh. It was a rough season for Justin as well. (laughs) All right. um, Put your hands down. Bless. That's good. (laughs) See when you can have a seat. Thank you very much. When I did it to James last night, it was like, you know, jump, clap, look up, you know, bless. (laughs) The first command in today's section is to bless. How are we supposed to do such a thing? The term gets thrown around quite a bit, but seldom do we actually consider what it means. The Westminster Dictionary of Theological Terms says this, bless or blessing, to praise or petition for divine favor to wish someone well and convey favor, used biblically to describe God's actions as infrequent blessings that Jesus conferred on people, a particular goodness received or given. So the commentator, one commentator puts it like this, to bless God is to ascribe him 
the praise that he is due. When God blesses us, he bestows blessing on us. But, but when we bless people, we invoke God's blessing upon them, pure and simple. I've heard it said that we shouldn't call the prayer before a, a meal a blessing because the, true, the food has already been blessed by God who's provided it. We just need to be thankful for it. So, so when we look at another person and we bless them, we're hoping that God was going to get involved. You know, we're hoping that he's going to get into their lives and in the best way possible, in that way that they'll see and taste the, that abundant life. So, so if we were going to conform to the image of this world in regard to blessing, we might start blessing each other simply in our own little religious communities. The people we love, the family we love, our friends that we love, our leaders, our spouses, our children. Maybe there are certain people that it would make sense that we would bless. Inside of a community of love, we'd want to bless those who bless us back. But what does Paul say? Who does Paul say we should bless in verse 14? Well... <laughs> now, <laughs> those who persecute us, and admittedly, persecution of early Christians was incomparable to, incomparable to something as insignificant as losing a baseball game, but don't think we're not getting back to that. The first three centuries of church history saw the number of Jesus followers grow at a steady rate. Some estimates have the total number of Christians at start of the 3rd century at about 200,000. Uh, Church Father Tertullian wrote that around the year 200, there were roughly a few thousand Christians living in Carthage, a city with a population of about 500,000. The increasingly dangerous problem was that this growing number would stand a greater chance in coming into conflict with the power of Rome. Now, historically, Rome was fairly con uh, tolerant of religious traditions um, uh, embraced by the people that they occupied or, or oppressed, unless it stood in the way of Roman law. As a line of emperors moved through the first three centuries, the line between religion and the state was, was virtually non-existent. It was one thing for Christians to worship a crucified Jewish leader. This wouldn't have caused much concern to the Romans. It was a completely different thing for them to reject Roman ideas of divinity that were violently enforced. It was a completely different thing for them to say, um, Jesus is Lord, and that means Caesar isn't. It was Emperor Nero who first sparked widespread persecution of Christians when he looked to blame a devastating fire on them. Christians were distrusted as Easterners, and met in secluded places with, some, um, with what some saw as secret practices. Nero attempted to exploit this around 64 CE when hundreds of Christians were executed, possibly including Peter and Paul. A second century historian named Tacitus claimed that Nero would dip Christians into oil and then use them to light his garden during parties. It was also said that Christians would be fed to wild animals for entertainment. 
while full-scale persecution was not common at first, um, this precedent would be repeated over the next two centuries as Christians developed a refusal to honor Rome's traditional gods. Provincial officials played leading roles in these persecutions. Some simply harassed Christians, and others just kind of ignored them. But many texts speak of Christians being brought into arenas for slaughter. Apparently, they were so brave that many Roman spectators converted on the spot. One moving story is of Perpetua, a 22-year-old woman who kept a prison diary at the beginning of the 3rd century. She died with her slave girl, uh, Felicity, in the arena of Carthage in 203. And despite her father's desperate pleading for her to renounce her faith and care for her infant child, Perpetua instead stood firm and was an example to many, even her fellow prisoners, especially her fellow prisoners. Apparently, after being tossed around, by wild animals, a young gladiator took a sword to finish the job, and historians tell us that Christians, um, uh, but the, the, the gladiator that took a sword to her throat, um, the, the gladiator missed. And Perpetua actually, it said, had to guide the gladiator's sword to her throat. Historians tell us that Christians were slandered, defamed, boycotted, mobbed, imprisoned, and beheaded, all because of their faith, martyrdom, then turned into a powerful way in which the early church blessed those who persecuted them. It was even said, I think it was Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The word persecution implies unjust and malicious treatment, maltreatment. And here Paul, not long before he was most likely killed by the Roman power machine, was telling the Jesus community in the city of Rome not just to tolerate persecution, not just to refrain from revenge, but to actually bless those who persecuted them, to invoke God's favor upon those who persecuted them. That integrity would be extraordinary. Paul's, his next line is, is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The sort of persecution recorded throughout history is incomparable to the sort of trials that I've suffered for my faith, but but, but that doesn't mean that I don't view this with the appropriate weight that it demands. If we think about it and we're able to consider the strength of love it would take to react to persecution like that, then I think we stand a better chance of navigating these social dynamics of our own day. And I think Jesus saw this coming. Um, Luke tells us of a time uh, when a lawyer approaches Jesus and asks him what needed to be done to inherit eternal life. This is in Luke 10, verse, uh, verse 26. Jesus says, <clears throat> well, what's written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, well, you shall uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbors as yourself, of course. 
And he said to him, Jesus says, well, yeah, that's the right answer. Do that. You'll be all right. But wanting to justify himself, the man asked Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, about 18 miles, and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, went away, leaving him half dead. Now, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed along the other side. Kind of gave him a wide berth. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, gave him a wide berth, passed on the other side. But then a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to an innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. I'm going to come back. I'm going to repay you whatever more you spend. And that's how the transaction happened. Now, Jesus says to the man, the lawyer, now, now, who do you think of these three guys? Who do you think was a neighbor to the man that fell into the hands of the robbers? And the guy's like, the one who showed him mercy. Who? The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, well, go and do likewise. I mean, Samaritans? Samaritans were half-breeds. Dallas Willard commands that the Jews of the, for the Jews of the day, the term good Samaritan would have been a complete oxymoron. The only good Samaritan would have been a dead Samaritan. So the lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? <laughs> and Jesus' basic response is, well, who do you hate? He can't even bring himself to say that it was a Samaritan who helped the man in trouble. He just said, well, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, you want to understand love? You want to understand how my kingdom works? It's going to take your humility. It's going to take you humbling yourself, taking up your cross, and start treating the word bless like the command that it is. It's at least comprehensible, although probably not natural, that we bless those who bless us that we'd be appropriately happy and sad for, for those that we like. But to bless those who persecute us, to bless those who would wish us harm, to bless those who have a completely different worldview, a completely different political agenda, a completely different religious dogma, a completely different cultural background or national pride, that's tough, but that's the gospel. If we really believe that we have good news, then that's got to mean something. Paul tells us that the way we do this, the way we live out the kingdom harmony displayed in how the Good Samaritan treated the bloody, the bloody man on the road is not to be haughty, not to be egotistical or high and mighty or conceited or assuming, but rather, rather we're to associate with the lowly 
not claiming that we're wiser than we are. This is a common theme in Paul, by the way. Uh, back in chapter 2, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. Later on in chapter 11, so that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. In just a few verses ago in, in chapter 12, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Again and again, and this is just a sampling of what Paul goes into, Paul reminds us that it is not based um, on our own righteousness that we are saved, but rather through God's grace. The cross the empty tomb. These things break down whatever conceited assumptions we have about who deserves to be saved, and then declares that none are righteous, no, not one, other than Jesus. The love that defines our community shows us that nothing, not hardship, not distress, not persecution, not famine, not nakedness, not peril or swords, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ that we don't deserve. And that, that's the message that we take with us when we pull out onto Reisterstown Road. That's the message that we take with us um, in our neighborhoods and when we do things like trunk or treat. And when we go to work and we go to school. And it's also, yes, the message that we have inside of us when we experience someone else's joy. For instance, when the royals beat the Orioles. It would be a rather simple thing to say, you know what? The system worked the way that it should. We lost. We lament the fact that we lost, and that's okay. But we rejoice with those who have a reason to be happy. In light of everything else that defines our faith, we have not just the obligation. We have the freedom to be joyful. It's an extraordinary thing that God has gifted us, the gift to be happy, the gift to have fellowship together, the gift of love. And as such, we're going to take communion now. Our communion table at New Hope is an open table, and we invite all of those who call upon the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to come forward. Now, if you do not worship Jesus as King, you shouldn't feel obligated to participate. The bread is unleavened, the red is wine, and the white is grape juice. First, though, please stand and join us, as churches throughout the centuries have done, in the reading of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. 
he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. <laughs> 